And I think of us as Christians, God needs Christians, you and me, to be generous Christians. And when we are, guess what's going to happen? We're going to make a difference. And this is what you'll see this morning in these verses, and you can follow along in your Bible or in the outline if you receive one of those in the bulletin, beginning in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. The Bible says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And shall we pray this morning? Lord, thank you for this tremendous example of generosity in the first century church. Bible-believing Christians, just like those that are here this morning, Lord, that realized that there are needs greater than their own. And Lord, we certainly are a blessed people. We don't have to look far to realize how blessed we are. And I pray that you would help us to get a hold of this principle so that we can make a difference. May we be like those in the first century. May we be generous in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. This account that we read this morning, it's a wonderful example of God's people looking beyond themselves. As a matter of fact, they dug deep. They began to meet the needs of those that were around them. Well, how did they do that? Well, the Bible says some sold land that they had, some sold houses, some maybe sold other things, and it's evident that many participated in this offering. They contributed in some way. As I think about this matter of our nature, and of course we understand that we all have that sin nature that our natural tendency as human beings is toward materialism, about being selfish and about even to some point being a little bit greedy. I see this happen many times and it's, it's always kind of interesting how folks, and we've done the same thing, you buy something, you just have to have it and then for years you never touch it, then you have a garage sale and you give it away for a couple dollars. That's why they say one man's junk is another man's treasure. I mean, it's amazing how much we pay for things and how we have to have so many things. But when I see these folks in Acts chapter 4, I see just the opposite. I see a, a group of Christians that quickly squelch those temptations in their lives. They kind of, in a sense, rolled up their sleeves and they began to demonstrate this matter of generosity. Ralph Dutera said, 
The only antidote to materialism is giving because it's exactly the opposite of greed. It's the exact opposite. And so in these believers in the first century, I see a great example for us in our lives in this area of generosity. Notice the perspective of generosity. The Bible says again in verse 32, it says here in verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them, there wasn't one person that said that the, the ought of the things which he possessed was his own. In other words, it, he didn't say, look, this is mine and it belongs to me. The Bible says none of them made those kind of statements, but they had all things common. I see generous Christians here who saw things differently maybe than many of us do because they saw, first of all, an obligation towards others. They did not see themselves as uh, independent. Now, I know we refer to ourselves as independent Baptists, and people say to me sometimes, Pastor, what does that mean? Here's what it means. The Bible says that Christ is the head of the church. This is his church. This isn't our church. This isn't certainly my church, that he is the head, and we are the body known as the church. And certainly we are independent because we do not belong to a conglomeration or a denomination. Those are things that man has created. We understand that Christ began the church and we are a part of his church. Now, we are an independent in that way, but these people did not see themselves and what they possessed as being independent. They saw themselves as being interdependent. They were interdependent upon each other and, of course, upon the Lord. They did not see things in the sense of them and us are mine and theirs. They saw it all as we and ours. The Bible says they had all things common. They considered their needs, or excuse me, the needs of others just as serious as the needs that they had in their own lives. And they had a built-in obligation to one another. Look what the Bible says in another place in 1 Corinthians 12 there in your notes. It says, as the body, and I was just talking about the church, that's what we are. Paul's writing here under the inspiration. He says, talking about the church, as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ, that there should be no schism, that means division, in the body, it says, but notice here the, that the members should have the same care for one another. And the Bible says back here in our passage that they had all things common. They had the same care one for another. If you look there in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, let's read on. The Bible says, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. If one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. We find in the Bible, John, as he wrote, John also expressed this obligation that we should have towards others, towards even fellow believers. Notice 1 John three seventeen: For whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? In other words, if we see the need, or... As I just shared with you, as we know of the need, and God has presented that to us, God shares that with us in his world, 
in His Word if we shut up our bowels of compassion. In other words, we don't really care. The Bible says, then how dwelleth the love of God in Him? So they saw an obligation towards others. But notice also, they had an openness towards substance ownership. The Bible, again, tells us that they didn't, uh, they didn't clench their fists tight with the things that they had. As a matter of fact, it was just the opposite. They had open hands and they had open hearts. They were willing in and of themselves. They held the things of this world loosely. I think all of us know this. You can't take it with, with you when you go. I mean, they realized this. Some people live all their lives trying to accumulate only to realize in the end of life that it was all in vain, that they can't take it with them. And the Bible tells us, just like these believers, that you cannot serve God and mammon, the things of this world. Some carry this disposition that we see many times of the children in the nursery. And it's been a long time since I've had children in there, but I've seen my, even my grandchildren go in there and they go in there with nothing, maybe a diaper bag. And as soon as they get in there, all the toys belong to them. And as soon as some child takes a toy that they weren't even playing with, and they see that child with that toy, they run across the nursery and grab it out of their arms and say, that's mine. And that's the way many people have in life, their disposition. But can I give you a great part of a verse in the Bible? Here's what it says. Jesus said these words, freely have you received, freely give. Let's say that together. Freely you have received, freely give. That means that all good gifts come down from above. God has blessed our lives. God has freely, listen, think about salvation. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Freely we have received. The Apostle Paul challenged all of us to have this right attitude in this area in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Look what it says. Every man, that's all of us, ladies, that's all inclusive. The Bible says every man according as he purposeth in his heart. The Bible says out of the heart comes the issues of life. And it, so as we purpose in our hearts, look at this, let him give, not grudgingly, notice, not of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. That's the kind of giver that God loves. Even Solomon, who had so many things in life, and Solomon wrote about how it was all vanity and vexation of spirit, but we understand that Solomon said something about accumulating wealth. He discouraged us in this area about refusing to meet the needs of others. Look what it says in Proverbs eleven twenty four: 24. There is that that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that that withholdeth more than is meat. And when we withholdeth, notice what it says, it tendeth to poverty. You know who some of the most miserable people are? The people that have the most. They always want more. Rockefeller said that. He says, I, if I just had a little more. And that's the way most people live their lives. David, when it came time in the Old Testament and they were receiving the offering at the dedication of the temple, 
David said this to the Lord. He said, all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Let me say that again. Of thine own, he says, have we given thee. In other words, God, as you give to us freely, we're giving back to you. That's what David said. Everything that we have belongs to the Lord. And we need to understand that this is the right perspective when it comes to generosity, that we have an obligation to, to, towards others and that we should have an openness when it comes to meeting the needs of others. Instead of holding on to it with tight, clenched fists, we should open our hands and open our hearts. And that's the perspective. But then notice, secondly, this morning, the prerequisites of generosity. Right from this passage in Acts chapter number 4, in the first century, when Jesus established the New Testament church, we see that there were some prerequisites. In other words, before, listen to me now, before the generosity, because a prerequisite means something that's required beforehand. Are you with me this morning? Kind of a teaching, preaching message this morning, but there was something that was required beforehand. In other words, before they would become generous, say, boy, I want to be a generous Christian. What would I have to do so that I can be a generous Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning. Notice, first of all, there was something that enabled these believers to be generous. The first thing was the discipline of prayer. Look back in our passage this morning in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the Bible says, excuse me, verse 31, I'm sorry, verse 31, the Bible says here, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they had assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. See, here's what I find is that prayer and generosity, they go together. That there has to be this discipline of prayer. It is a prerequisite when it comes to this matter of giving. God's word, when you, when you search the scriptures, I'll give you two places this morning. There are really two kinds of believers described when it comes to prayer and generosity. One of them is in the passage this morning in Acts chapter 4. This is a group of believers who are selfless. They are sacrificial they are sharing. That's what you see in this passage. They are selfless. It's not about them. It's about others. See, while they share with others, guess what they're doing? They're also at the same time seeking the Lord to meet their own needs, but they're sensitive to the needs of others. They're opening up their own bowels of compassion to see that there are people in this world that have needs. They're, they're, they're sensitive to what the Lord would have them to do to help to meet those needs. And that's one group of believers when it comes to generosity and prayer. But the second kind we find in James chapter number four, there in your notes, these people are not open-handed, open-hearted people. They're closed-fisted. These are people that are not content. They're always wanting more. It's about them. They're not sacrificial in their giving. They don't see God. Listen now, they don't see God as the source of provision. They just don't see it. They live by this philosophy, every man for himself. So many live that way. 
Notice how James describes it in James chapter 4. From whence come war and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members ye lust and have not? Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain? Ye fight and war, yet ye have not. Why? Because ye ask not. Well, who should we ask? God. God is the one that would supply your need. God is the one. I, I, I mentioned Tuesday night during a, the conclusion of our missions conference, and I, I told those folks as they fill out that card, and maybe you did this morning or you will in just a few minutes, that, listen, it's going to require faith on your part because the truth is, is that faith is the evidence of things not seen. And many times we don't, we'll think to ourselves, well, I know what my bills are. I know what it's going to take. I know there are needs, but what about mine? That's where faith comes in. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. How many of you want to please the Lord today? It requires faith, folks. It requires faith. And there has to be the discipline of prayer. I wonder this morning in your heart, which one of those two groups do you fit into? The one that is open-handed, open-hearted, or the one that's close-handed and cold-hearted? You see, there has to be a discipline of prayer before the generosity. But the other prerequisite is the disposition of grace. Go back in Acts chapter 4, look at verse 33. The Bible says there, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Somebody described grace years ago this way. They described it as God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a pretty good definition. God's riches. Jesus was rich, but for our sakes, he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. You see, we are rich today. I like to have fun sometimes with people. Sometimes people say to me, boy, I just don't have a lot of money. And I'll say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm rich. And they'll say, whoa, how much money do you have? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Don't you know what's in your bank account? Well, it's, my father has it right now, but whenever, whenever your father, when my father wants to give it to me, he will. They're like, wow, what is, did your dad make a lot of uh, good investments? Did you, if he owned a lot of And I just have fun. I just keep it going as long as I can. And eventually I have to tell him the truth. And by the way, I haven't been lying that God owns it all. Cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine, it all belongs to him. And listen, when it comes to our lives, far beyond any finances, where would we be without grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? And the Bible says here in Acts 4 that great grace was upon them all. God doesn't make mistakes in His Word. This wasn't just a matter of 
the grace of God. It was great grace. And it wasn't just upon the apostles. It was upon them all. This disposition of grace. The word grace is the word charis. It's a word that helps us to understand that it's a divine influence, God's influence on our hearts. It's the reflection of God in our lives. It's the disposition that enabled them and it enables us to give freely. Grace, somebody said, is God's work in our hearts. It gives us the ability, listen, to give generously to the work of God. And listen, folks, especially those of us that have never forgotten how good and how gracious God has been to all of us. There's a great passage in the Bible back in 2 Corinthians there in your notes, and I want you to see as the grace of God comes to the forefront of this passage, look at it with me, would you? Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellow, fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. And unto us, by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Notice the words, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Here's the question. How's your disposition? How do you look at things this morning? Because here's how I look at it. God is good all the time. God is good. And if there's going to be a generosity, it has to have the right perspective. We see an obligation to others, and we need to have an openness instead of saying, it is mine, we need to say, listen, it belongs to all of us. God has been so good. But I see the prerequisites. There has to be the discipline of prayer. God, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to be a part of this to meet the needs? But then I also see this disposition of grace. I see God's working in people's hearts and how God gives us the opportunity. Now, here's the best part. Right here in this passage, I see from what God was doing by His grace, I see the personality of generosity. 
the personality of generosity. In other words, what are we talking about? The visible aspects of generosity. What does it look like? Well, notice, first of all, in verse 34, they were a people who did not lack. Who did not lack. I mean, you think about many times I hear people say, Pastor, I wish I was able to do this and I can't hardly pay for this. What are they saying to me? What are they saying to others? I lack. I can't do this. I can't participate. They're doing without. They, they don't have the, the funds. But these were a people that did not lack. Look at verse 34. The Bible says this, neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things which were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. In other words, each person individually their needs were met. That's what the Bible says here. As they openly shared what God had given to them, not one person in that group had to do without. Not one person lacked. There was sufficiency. Why? Because there was, first of all, generosity. As we are generous, God meets our needs. Some people have it backwards, and they think, that God, they think God wants their money and that God wants them to do without things. But the truth is, you're talking about the same God who spared not his only son so that we can have eternal life. Folks, I'm going to tell you this morning, God is faithful. And if there ever was someone that was generous, it is our God. God gave his only begotten son, the Lamb of God. The generosity that I see that God wants us to trust him. God doesn't want us to trust ourselves. God wants to meet our needs. And Paul wrote under the inspiration and he talked about God's plan. Listen, listen, listen this morning. God's plan is not scarcity. God's plan is sufficiency. God doesn't want to, uh, giving in this area of giving to meet the needs. He doesn't want giving to be a burden on a few the truth is, it's an exercise, as you look in the Word of God, of equal generosity and abundant supply. Look at 2 Corinthians there in your notes. If there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye be burdened but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, and that their abundance may also be a supply for your want, that there may be equality as it is written, he that hath gathered much had nothing over, and he that hath gathered little had no lack. I see here a people that had nothing to lack. They, God met their needs. Listen, folks, I know that is the desire of every one of us that God would meet our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God wants to meet your needs this morning. And I see the personality of a people that did not lack, but I also see an example here of a man who sold his land. The Bible says in verse 36, look at it in, in Acts chapter 4. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, 
which is being interpreted the son of consolation, which means encouragement. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Notice what Barnabas did. He had land, he sold it, and he brought the price, the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you have to understand that at this time, the apostles represented the leadership in the early church. And as they brought that, those things that they had, they gave towards those, that here's what God instructed, that then they would take it and they would distribute it to those that had needs. Barnabas is someone that I believe is a man that made a difference. And here's why. Because he was a man, by his decisions, he decided to do something worthwhile. Uh, years ago, <clears throat> before God led us out to California, I remember watching a, an anniversary video of the church that my pastor has pastored now for 32 years. And I remember the video that they took of him when he was a young man in his mid-20s. He was standing on the corner of Lancaster Boulevard and 40th Street East in Lancaster, California. Now, if you've never been out there, it's kind of an interesting place because it is part of the Mojave Desert. And when I say desert, I mean desert. I never thought, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to watch westerns. I enjoyed old westerns. And a lot of times I'd see tumbleweeds on the westerns. I never thought I'd live in a place with tumbleweeds. I'm talking tumbleweeds that are as big as a car. I was driving down the road one day. There was a tumbleweed coming right at me. I could not get out of my lane because traffic was coming the other way. And I hit this tumbleweed head on. I had no idea what was going to happen. They're basically sagebrush that have dried up from the root. They break off because of the wind. And they just start rolling until they either lodge up against something or hit something. When I hit that, it just exploded in like a million pieces. And I thought took care of that tumbleweed. <laughs> but my pastor was standing on the corner and he was so excited about this piece of property that was behind him in this video. And he's standing there with his Bible in his hand and he's describing all of what God has shown him that is going to take place on that piece of property. Now, you have to remember, there's nothing there. I mean, everybody's watching and thinking, this preacher's blown a gasket. I mean, and there is nothing behind him. He's talking about people being reached with the gospel. He's talking about buildings going up. He's talking about an American flag uh, blowing in the wind. They're representing God and country. He's talking about how they were going to run buses through the community and how uh, this and this and this. And he's going on and on and on about that. And I'll, I'll never forget a man who has stood in this pulpit, Dr. Don Sisk, who has done so much in the area of missions, worldwide evangelization. And Dr. Sisk was invited to go out there uh, to Lancaster, California, to see that, that piece of property that my pastor was so excited about. And Don Sisk stood there in front of the camera and he made this statement. He says, I, I don't, honestly, he said, I looked at it and I, I said to myself, how can someone get so excited over a dust bowl? That's all it was, just dust. But if you go there today, you'll see a campus of over 100 acres 
that probably has, God has raised through that church, not outside sources, probably tens, twenties, thirty million dollars worth of buildings on that property. There's a Bible college that's training men and women from 14 foreign countries and from 46 states in the United States of America. All on a piece of property that nothing was happening on. And the reason I give you that illustration is this, because like Barnabas, many of us have things that have just been sitting around. They're sitting on the side of our house. They're sitting at a dock somewhere. It may be a piece of property somewhere. And honestly, it's nothing but a patch of dirt. It's just something that is of no value. It's laying dormant. And Barnum's begin to think about the need that was there and how, uh, listen, I want to be a part of it. And Barnabas said, look, he says, I, God helped him understand. I've got this little piece of land. And so what did Barnabas do? He says, I haven't used it. I haven't done anything with it. And so Barnabas was directed by God. He sold that. And he gave the proceeds to the work of God. And the Bible says that they took those proceeds. And look, I don't know exactly, but I, I, in my mind, here's what I think is, Maybe they were able to feed some hungry people. Maybe they were able to buy some clothes for some people that had needs. Maybe they were able to put a roof over someone that was homeless. But I can say this this morning, because of generosity, God took a dry, dusty patch of land and he used it to meet a need. Jesus challenged his listeners in his day. And here's what he said, that we need to seize the unrighteous mammon of this world. He was talking about money, material things. And use that for the advancement of his kingdom and his purpose here on the earth. Somebody made this statement and I liked it. Money has no real eternal value until it's invested in an eternal work. Let me say that again. Money has no real eternal value until it is invested into an eternal work. And so the, the thing that I want to do is this. I want to invest in something that God values. I want to make a difference. The Bible says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Temporary. But he says, the things which are not seen are eternal. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. The great thing about being generous, as we see in this passage this morning, is not only does it meet the needs of others, but here's what I find is it actually ends up meeting my own needs. God ends up supplying my needs. I think about Barnabas, and you can study the Bible. There are other places where you see Barnabas became the one that began missionary travels with the Apostle Paul. Barnabas was the man God instrumentally used to help the other apostles when Paul or Saul of Tarsus got saved. He was the one that said, 
he's okay. God has done a work in his heart. He's one of us now. And I thought to myself, where did Barnabas get this lifestyle of faith and this service that he had? And here's the conclusion I came to. It's because before God began to use Barnabas, Barnabas realized that I just need to keep a loose hold on the things of this world. He didn't have a closed fist. It wasn't, this is mine. It was, I want to open my hands. I want to open my heart. He made a simple decision in this passage to sell a vacant lot, a piece of land. When he was nudged by the Holy Spirit of God, he learned to be a generous Christian, one that made a difference. A while back, somebody shared this story with me, and I'd like to share it with you this morning, and this is a true story. Any Canadians in here this morning? A couple of them? This might make you proud to be a Canadian. It's entitled, The Canadians Who Sheltered 7,000 Travelers. It says, on the day the World Trade Center fell, the Pentagon burned, and almost 3,000 people died. Hundreds of aircraft carrying thousands of frightened passengers were ordered to land. Any one of the planes in the air that morning of September 11, 2001, could have been another death missile who knew how big this terrorist attack really was. When the United States shut down its airspace, tiny Gander International Airport in Newfoundland opened its runways, taking in 38 wide-bodied planes on transatlantic routes. Every year, September 11th reminds us, as Americans, of the unfiltered evil in our world. It's also necessary to remember the human capacity for kindness and generosity. The people of Gander, a town of no more than 10,000 people, looked at all those planes lined up on the airport's runway and didn't think of terrorism. They didn't see potential attacks. They just wanted to help. It was a logistic challenge. They didn't have hotels or restaurants to take in nearly 7,000 passengers. And they knew that the people from more than 100 countries stuck on those planes were mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, grandmothers, just like the Newfoundlanders were. <clears throat> A lady named Krista Folks, she had just become a grandmother. She was one of those on one of the planes, and she was returning from a solo trip to visit her family in Germany, and she was on her way back to Norfolk, Virginia. When her plane was diverted to Gander, the family was frantic, wondering if Grandma was okay. She was. She said she had a fantastic experience there. Everyone treated her very well, folks said. Her mother-in-law, who just turned 80, was on the road again and couldn't be reached to tell the story herself, but Amy and the rest of the family remembered that their matriarch was shown kindness, comfort, and compassion in those fraught days. 
the people of Gander and surrounding fishing villages filled their schools, community rooms, and churches with cots for Krista Folks and the other stranded passengers. The town's bus drivers who were on strike that day walked off their picket lines and went back to work. Bakeries went into overdrive production. Hospitals staffed up, and many of the town people opened their homes and offered their beds to the plain people, they called them. They found a way even to care for the 17 dogs and cats and the two great apes who were also aboard the planes. There on a Canadian island of green hills and rocky coast, humans were at their best. None of the townspeople would accept any money because of their generosity. Listen to this. This is after the fact, same article. So after the passengers were finally able to reboard their planes, there was a lady named Shirley Brooks, 80 years old, who was a longtime fundraiser at Ohio State University. God gave her an idea in midair. She passed around a notebook and asked each of the passengers to contribute a scholarship, to a scholarship fund for the children of Gander. <clears throat> they had $15,000 collected when they landed. Brooks Jones did this for a living. So she helped turn that endeavor into more money. The Lewisport Area Flight 15 Scholarship Fund, they call it, has grown to about $2 million. As of this year, and this was two years ago, the scholarship has been received by 228 graduates of Lewisport Collegiate High School, Brooke Jones said. There were 28 scholarships this year alone. This lady has returned to Newfoundland 26 times and often met with the students who got the scholarships, including one who is now a town doctor. Most of us still have vivid memories of the horror of that day. We relive our fear those terrorists instilled in our society. Every time we take off our shoes at the airport or go through a metal detector at, the, at a museum or maneuver past ugly concrete bollards, but let, let's also consider the incredible acts of bravery that we witnessed that day and the days that humans were at their best in a small town in Newfoundland when they made a difference by generosity. And folks, I'm going to tell you what God did in the first century and God did on 9-11 in Newfoundland. God wants the same thing to happen here. God wants us to be a people that have freely received from the Lord and freely give. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? May all of us understand that God wants us to open up our bowels of compassion. It's not about us. We have an obligation to meet the needs of others. Do you have the right perspective? Do you want to be open-handed, open-hearted, or close-handed? and cold-hearted. Lord, I pray that you'd bless this invitation.
Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a people, men and women of faith. Thank you for giving us the greatest gift that was ever given, your son Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help, that you would speak to us this day. I believe that you already are. Help us to respond this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.